Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. My East Coast friends, okay? Remember, me and Joanne live on the West Coast. And this has been happening lately. Uh, last night, Joanne's brother and her sister-in-law and nephew went to Italy. So she's waiting for them to call to just say they got there okay. And so she left her volume of her phone on. Well, the problem is she plays words with friends, with people back East. And people forget that at like six in the morning for us, for you, is three in the morning. So we were getting these weird sounds all night. So you have to stop people. Remember, if you want to text, if you want to play a game, it's all fun. It's all great. However, when we're out West, there's a three hour difference and it woke me up. So anyway, enough about that. We have a great show today. Uh, we have an amazingly talented person, uh, Martha Davis. How you doing, Martha? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Now, do you ever get calls, like people call you in the middle of the night or text you, and then you sit there and you're like, wait a second, you know, I was sleeping. Don't you know there's a time difference? Does that ever happen to you? Nope. Nope. Not where I live. Uh, where I live, my cell phone doesn't work because I'm out on a farm up in Oregon, and uh, so I have the blessing of not having that damn thing go off, and... Landlines, people don't even, people are afraid of landlines, so they don't ever use those, so it's fine. Okay, no, it's good. You're right. People, landlines, I mean, when I was a kid, it was all about the landline because we didn't have cell phones. Exactly. And it was like you knew and, and you remembered everybody's phone number because you didn't have a phone yep. number to put it in. And now people don't even, I mean, if you ask someone, if you ask someone to dial a kid to dial a regular phone, I bet they wouldn't have any idea what to do. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, and when we used to get in the car, there was no phone in your car. There was, you, that was the beauty of getting in the car, the phone wouldn't ring. And now, now it's just a whole different ballgame. I still remember my phone number from when I was, you know, the first phone we had, which was Ashbury 39646. See, I was, uh. That was a long time ago. I was area code 609-428-0499. It was Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and I still remember that. Exactly, because you know what we had to do? That was the first thing we were taught. We had to learn our phone number and our address so we'd know where we were if we ever got lost or something like that. I don't know. It's crazy. Good so, days. Oh, they were the good days. So now where did you grow up? What area did you actually grow up in? I grew up in Berkeley, California. Okay. And now as a kid, was there was you were you musically inclined as a kid? Did you grow up with a family that listened to music? How did this whole career of yours that's been a great career and lasted ages, how how did it all start? How did you get into music? How did you find that you wanted to sing? Well, I think my family, my mother loved music and had a wonderful music collection. <clears throat> In those days, it was 78, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, I remember my first fascination was with this crazy record called The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. I was like five, and she would put that record on, and I would just become mesmerized by it. it was, but she also had Jelly Roll Morton and Dixieland and Bessie Smith, and you know, she had a great collection. So there was that, and my father was actually musical in the sense that he had a beautiful voice, and I still remember him singing me songs at night to go to sleep. I mean, he was just a gorgeous voice, and at one point, he was a business guy, but he just he had a a deep low, he played the recorder, and he brought home this little guitar from his workplace that had been in the basement that he was worried about, and he was going to learn to play the guitar. And I ended up learning to play that guitar. That guitar was amazing. It was actually built in the, the late 1860s, and I still have it. 
and it was the song, the guitar that only Lonely showed up on one day. Um, beautiful little parlor guitar. Um, and I was taught my first three guitar chords by this wonderful African-American student from Cal Berkeley by the name of Felton Henderson, whose first job when he graduated Cal Berkeley as only one of two African-Americans allowed in the law department and the only one that was allowed to graduate, that was the 60s, um, he went on to become Bobby Kennedy's, uh, the first African-American to work with Bobby Kennedy on the civil rights program. He knew everybody from Martin Luther King to Malcolm X to everything. We're still friends. He has great stories. And he taught me my first three guitar chords. And um, he's now a superior court justice. And I think he is. He should be retired, but he keeps going, you know. But So I had this amazing beginning in music where it just started out as learning of these three chords and the first songs I actually played were Negro spirituals because I loved those songs. They were so beautiful and my first performance in the fourth grade was Swing Low, Sweet Chariot and You Must Walk This Lonesome Valley, you know. <laughs> and so I, um, from there I just kept playing the guitar in my room and making up stuff and that's how it all started. Did you, were you starting to make, when you made up stuff, were you writing, started doing that? I was, by the time I was 15, I had become um, a mother. I was, I was pregnant at 14, gave birth at 15, and because there was not a lot of options, um, married the guy that was the father and became an Air Force wife in Tampa, Florida. Until that time, I had only just sort of, I would, just find melodies and noodle around on my guitar and just, you know, I was just trying to, you know, I was just figuring stuff out by myself. It was totally self-taught. I would just make up little things. When I got to Florida at 15, as a young mother, I started writing songs. And so that's when that, that when the lyrics and the music and stuff all came together. But never with any, in, <clears throat> excuse me, intent of becoming a musician or just because it was my sol solace. And uh, it just was what, kept me sane and you know your instrument becomes your confidant your it, your music becomes your your way out you know so that's that's what it was I had no intention of doing this professionally no desire nothing like that so you had no intention you had no desire so how did that all change because you've been doing it and you've been successful at it. When was there a certain, I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, I'm talking to someone who said, oh, I, I sang when I was young and I, that, that was it. You've had a very good career. When was there a defining moment or when did it start to happen that you said, I'm going to do this professionally and I can do it? There wasn't a when or a what, it was a who. It was that, that goddamn David Bowie who I love so much because over the, because probably of my mother's wonderful collection, my interest in music was not just one thing. I loved, like I said, I loved spirituals. I loved, um, I did folk music for a while. I did, um, I love, you know, um, when I say did folk music, I mean, I listened to that and I would sort of make up things in that genre. But um, it, so I had all these different influences. When I became like a teenager, teenager, I was way into soul music, way, way, way. You know that was. And so by the time I got older, and I'd still been, I never stopped playing, and I was writing stuff, and you know, and it was getting more, you know, more like songwriting. So that was there. But then David Bowie came along and combined 
all of these things that I loved. He had the soul music. He had the musicals. He had the, you know, this this very, uh, and I just went, I want to do that. I just <laughs> want to do that. And so that's what I thought I could do. And, of course, that was probably 1971 was when I first sort of joined a band and didn't get signed to Capitol till 79. So that's a good eight years of, trying to believe that this could possibly happen and with two children and no support system that's a little difficult but um i guess it worked yeah it did and so so you were 71 you were back in berkeley i believe yep okay so no so no how did you find your band because i always say it's 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 not like now we talked about the phones earlier it's like now if you need if you had a band and you needed a guitarist or a drummer you could just put on Craigslist, I need a guitarist or drummer. You could say on Facebook, I need a guitarist or drummer. Back then, it wasn't it wasn't that easy. How did you put together the first band? Well, it was very easy for me because I didn't put it together. I got a call from my girlfriend, Lisa Brennis, who's a bass player, and she said, you've been talking like you want to do music. Well, I've got a band. You want to come over and sing? And I went, uh, okay. And we, it was... Um, we had three rehearsals. We were doing cover songs like Stand By Me and stuff like that and some originals that the guys, Dean Chamberlain and Chuck Wada, had written in the band. And we had a gig in three days at Project Arto in San Francisco, which is this crazy artist commune where, like, and it's 1971, and it's Halloween night, and a lot of people were on acid, and I was terrified. I was like, this was my first actual show, and I was... I can't do this. Show me the door. I'm out of here. I cannot do this. No possible way. And it was such a free-for-all that they said, look, if you don't go on right now, you're going to lose your slot because there's all these other bands that want to play. And all of a sudden, something in me just snapped, and I went, no, we're going on. And I just I turned into a different person. It scared the bejesus out of me. I was like, all of a sudden, because I was shy, and you know, like most musicians, we come from a place of deep insecurity. I don't know why that is, but I guess that explains why we need to be loved by a lot of people. You know, I don't know. But I all of a sudden was on stage. I was staring people in the face. I was down on my knees. I was doing all this crazy stuff. As long as I was playing music, as soon as the song stopped, I would revert back to, like, crazy, insecure Martha. So I was just... I instantly discovered that I was able, through music, to really exercise a lot of parts of me that never got to come out and that became extremely addictive so you're so you're at that point you found yourself on stage and then you decide to move to LA was that a hard move for you really difficult really difficult because everything about my personality sort of contradicted what actually happened to me I never wanted to leave Berkeley I had two kids I loved the school systems up there you know it was like I hated LA, um, and in the seventies, LA was. I mean, granted, you could definitely use the freeways, and there would be no one on them. But the pollution was so bad that it would literally physically make you ill because it was just a different time and sucking down lead or whatever we were sucking down at that time. Um, it was Berkeley was beautiful. LA was not. You know, I didn't. I didn't feel comfortable at all. But I knew that. If I was going to do this, I had to do it, you know. I didn't like Bay Area music at all. 
um, my all of my musical influences were pretty much English, so I knew that what was happening in the Bay Area was not the Grateful Dead was not what, what was floating my boat, you know. So I I just picked up the kids and then we went down there, and this was after right after both my parents had just my my mom committed suicide, then my dad died about a year and a half later of um, a, the flu actually, and so there was nothing. There was nothing, it was kind of, it was kind of like, fuck it, excuse my French, um, I got, I'm going to go do this thing. And my mom's suicide actually played a huge role in it, because when she died, I found a diary that she had left that I never knew she had, and I realized that she was, you know, woman of the 50s, and who had, was a brilliant, brilliant woman, Phi Beta Kappa English major, Cal Berkeley, wanted to be a writer really badly, but just sort of pushed aside all of her things to try to, you know, the, the housewife she was supposed to be, you know, it was such a different time. And she was, she became so miserable. So her life just, you know, so I'm reading this right at the time I want to be a musician and I'm kind of going, you know what? She's telling me something from the grave. She's saying, you know, you got to at least try to fulfill your aspirations in some way because the, I think it was just so crushing to her that her life was, was nothing, you know. So anyway, um, and pills and booze probably helped that too. But um, so off I went, and um, we went down there to, planning to take LA by storm, you know, overnight. We were going to be instant success, and of course, we came down at the time where it was LA was pretty much the Linda Ronstadt Eagles. California sound, very produced, very polished, and we were this weird hybrid funk, crazy, you know, we were a mess, <laughs> and so we were immediately, and there was no place to play in LA, no place, unless you had a record deal, you could not perform, so we didn't have a record deal, and we're like, well, how do you get a record deal if you can't perform, you know, so we actually put together a thing called Radio Free Hollywood, we got, it was us, the pop and the dogs and put it all together ourselves and a lot of people showed up and various clubs, Madame Wong's became, you know, and as things were getting better, what happened? Are you there? Huh? I can, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. You cut, you cut out for a second. I don't know if maybe it was just something on your phone. I'm here. Okay. Hello? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry. No, it's fine. Not moving. You said you, you started going to Madame Wong's. Yeah. That place was wonderful. And that's that's when the, the same record exec from Capitol came down to see us that had seen us at the Starwood, you know, two years before when the band broke up. And uh, he was back there. And... It wasn't long after before this was a that new band before we got signed. Now, what was that like getting signed? I mean, was it you know did you feel pressure because you you had to produce a record or did you already have a lot of material? What did you uh, what happened when you did that? The, the the first record is never the one that that that's hard. It's the second record. The first record you've been out, you're playing songs, you've got your all your stuff, your sound. Um, so we basically went in and played the set that we had played at Madame Wong's the week before, you know, 
but it's the second record when they're, you know, you need, it's taken you years to put together those first songs and decide which ones are good, and you're, there's not, there's no pressure, but second album, you have to get in there and get it, get it going, so that's when, you know, you have to write, and you have to write well, and you have to be able to <laughs> pull it off, so it's any record after the first, the first one, most people will tell you, is, is pretty much easy, because you've been doing it for a while. Now, because you were performing live a lot, was it something, was it a different process for you to go into the studio? I mean, you said the first one's the easiest, but was it hard for you to go into the studio because it's different to performing live and you were having a big following performing live? I mean, what is it like when you go and you record that first album when you're used to playing live? It was weird, 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 because it didn't sound anything like us to me. And I had no concept of how you record an album or what it was about. So, I mean, I, it, I was just kind of confused. And because I'm not somebody that sort of fights for my rights or even knows, you know, I didn't, I never felt, I didn't have the confidence, especially in the beginning, to even believe I even knew what I was doing. Because I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was all made, you know, everything I did, I made up, you know. So I was like... And, and I, you know, I think being a dropout, you know, I just felt like I was just kind of a, I don't know, I didn't have a lot of confidence. So when I would hear the drums and I'd go, God, in my head I would say, that doesn't sound anything like drums that I know, because you're used to, like, the crashing, bashing of the live performance. You're used to air moving, you're used to hearing, you know. So as it got all sanitized, I was like, uh, I don't know, but... I guess they'll do that thing where they fix it in the mix. I guess that's what'll happen. Well, it never sounded to me like we sounded live, and it never will. And I, this is what you learn about albums. They're different than playing live. But at first, you just don't know that. You think that, you know, you'll be able to get that same sound. Um, but I still, that first album is my favorite Motels album. So after that, do you then go on a tour after that first album, or are you still playing Madame Wong's and stuff like that? And who were some of the other oh, bands? No. What, what was that? As you're saying, also, who were some of the bands that were that were playing with, around with you? Like you guys were in a category. Who were some of the bands that were considered your peers at that time after your first album? Well, I remember we used to rehearse at the Masked down below the Pussycat Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, and the band that we shared a room with was this band called the Go-Go's. Okay. And we got signed before they did. And they were like, oh, we're going to move our equipment to your side of the room. Maybe we'll get signed too. So, uh, and they did. And boy, were they, they're just such great gals. I still love them. Um, but, you know, when we were in Madame Wong's, it was like 2020 and, and the Blasters and this, you know, there was a bunch of different sort of more punk rock scene. And then, you know, as we went out, it, it, we played with a lot of really interesting and wonderful people from REM to Ultramox to, you know, because you just go get these gigs and there were people who would be playing with you or opening or whatever, you know. So on the big tours, it was um, the Cars. We did a wonderful tour with the Cars. We played with Jake Giles. We, I think we did one with Super Tramp. You know, all kinds of different people. <laughs> Now, after the first album, who did they send you out? Did you have to go on a big tour? And what was that like? Because, you know, you were playing in L.A. LA a lot, and you were a mom with two kids. Did they sit there and say, hey, we're going to send you out on this tour? And, and were you were you excited, or were you like, oh, my God, I really don't want to go on the road? Um, 
I was kind of at that point. I was kind of on autopilot. I think, I think in a lot of ways. I think partially because I, you know, I still hadn't really dealt with the death of my parents. You know, I was just like kind of like I just was. I was just going forward, and so yes, we immediately got tours. We immediately went out. I, I remember the first time I heard one of our songs. We were. Just leaving the airport in Boston, and we get in the cab, and they're playing "Dressing Up" on the, on the, in the cab, and I was like, "Oh my God, we're on the radio!" And then, then we went to Europe that same year, you know, and I believe Australia that same year because "Total Control" became a big hit in Australia. So yeah, all of a sudden you're just—it's a whole different ball game, and there's a. Uh, it's a, it's tricky because you don't really know what's going on. You're just doing what you're told to do, and there's yeah, it was it, it was fantastic. It was weird. Um, I had a lot of issues <laughs> in terms of you know crazy boyfriends and this and that and the other thing. But um, it, it, it's a, I think that it kind of culminates in that song only the lonely because it, it's kind of this feeling of like. You know, everywhere we'd go, there'd be, like, limos and roses and champagne and blah, blah, blah. But it was really kind of a freaky time for me and kind of scary. So, um, it's, yeah, it's a, it was a strange journey. What's it like being a musician when, you, as you said, you're huge in Australia and then you still have been broken big here? Don't you want to stay in Australia where you're getting all this adoration? I mean... I've, I've talked to other bands who have been huge in, in European countries. When they come back to the States, they're popular, but not what they are like that. I mean, how do you handle that kind of fame? Does it drive you crazy when you leave somewhere where you know, like you guys, your album broke there? And then you come back here and it's, it's, you're hearing it on the radio, but it's not getting as popular. How do you handle that? Um, I think because that same thing has been true for a long time. I mean, I've, the my main instinct is to just try to, to make, you know, I, I have a real, real desire to make music and to create songs and to have have them heard. And I'm, you know, I think the reason I want to have them heard is I'm so curious if I've like hit the right notes. You know what I mean? Not not just vocally, but with what I'm saying. So my drive has always just been pretty much about creating and, and almost. Like, when I was little, I never had any desire to be... I still don't have any desire to be famous. I don't like that part of it. That part, to me, is the least you know, satisfying of the whole process. The process of writing, the process of performing, um, of recording. These things are very, very satisfactory. The whole concept of being famous. Um, paying the bills is nice. That's a good thing. And it's getting harder and harder to do in the music business these days. But um, but the same thing, I'm just really got, I got nothing for that. I just, I don't want to, it's silly to me. So, that's good though. I mean, you, you're a true artist. That's the thing. You know, it's like, you don't want to be famous. And a lot of people don't want to be, and then they do become famous, and they go, what the hell, I never wanted to be famous. Yeah, yeah, and and you and it's a real easy thing to fall into because they groom you for that kind of behavior and for that kind of thing, and it's it's. But you know, I kind of maintained like the whole. I remember going to a show one day. You know, this was after we we're 
big, you know, and had success. And I show up for sound check looking like the ratty person that I like to be. You know, I'm just like a weird thrift store person, you know. <laughs> and, you know, before I go on stage, before I put on my makeup, before I do that, and they weren't going to let me in because they didn't know who I was. And I said, no, but I'm, I'm worth <laughs> But there's other people who make sure that their persona goes with them 24 hours a day. You know, it's like you can you can opt in or opt out of this fame thing, you know. Rod Stewart is probably always going to look like Rod Stewart no matter when you see him, you know. He's like, he's developed this thing that is his persona. Um, I haven't seen him lately, so I don't know for sure. But, um, you know, I, I look completely different on stage than I do when I'm not. And that's very, very calculated. I, that stuff is for on the stage, and when I'm off... I want to just be able to hang out and, you know, I don't want to be famous. <laughs> now, now, okay, so the second album comes out, and how does the second al- album do in sales? Didn't do very well at all. Danger, I think, got a little bit of airplay. Um, yeah, there was, it was kind of nothing. It was kind of nothing. Capital's just still hanging in. That was when there was a thing called artist development, and they actually didn't just, you know, make an album if you didn't have a hit goodbye they stuck with you if they believed there was talent there and there was something that they could you know eventually make money at so then the third album comes out now because the second album didn't do that well and you know do you start losing a little bit of confidence saying you know we have to do something quick else you know as you said capital is not going to last forever I mean what was your mindset yeah. going into that third album and did you ever think that you would have these huge songs off that and was there any other songs on the album that you thought would be the hit that didn't become the hit well the first the first problem with the third album is that it never got released we made an album called apocalypse that only got released uh 30 years later in 2011 and that was a completed album that was is actually an album i love very much it was, we were working with producer Val Garay, but their, the guitar player, Tim McGovern, who was also my boyfriend, was a very powerful influence. And I would say he, he had more to do with the production value of that album than Val did. I mean, he kind of was running the show. And they were both powerful guys, and it was kind of, it was, it, it, it was a strange process. But when that album got completed, Val Garay had this rule that he never wanted the record company to hear anything until the album was done. So they hadn't had any chance to come in and give us any their two cents. We finished the album, turned it in, and the record company said, uh, we'll release it if you want us to, but we don't think anybody's going to work this album. It's too dark and too weird. So that album got shelved. Then Tim and I broke up. He left the band. Um, Val took over very different sensibilities. He was, you know, he had just come off that big hit with Betty Davis eyes and he took over and he became the maniac in charge and we made the all for one album, which is way, way more MOR than my tastes usually. I mean, I'm, I like quirky stuff. I like stuff that's on the outside, you know, uh, this was, this started sounding really mainstream and here's the double edged sword. We have a hit now. So I'm doing music that's less less exciting to me in terms of its production and the way it's happening that the money's starting to roll in and capital's happy. So 
continue on. You know, you just keep doing it. Now, as that album is getting big and, you know, the song's becoming a hit, MTV pops up pretty much. How do you think MTV helped your career in so many different 80s bands? Because a lot of them, you know, I remember when MTV first came on, I remember sitting there, we would watch that religiously. I mean, we would sit there and we'd be excited for the new videos and it would make us go buy albums. You know, we wouldn't have known who Flock of Seagulls were if it wasn't for MTV. Yeah. And we wouldn't have known if, who's the guy with the crazy hair, you know, so you were, yeah. you were drawn to that. What was it like when, you know, did you think the videos would have so much influence? And what was it like when you, when you started making videos? I mean, what is that like for an artist when it's basically you guys like playing live? And then you, you, know, you get in the studio. What's it like when you make a video? Is there just, do you have to be in a certain mind frame? Well, because I think, you know, first of all, they were, I think, dramatically important to people in their careers, and, and it changed the landscape completely. Um, I, once again, I was really lucky because I worked with really wonderful directors from David Fincher to Russell McKay. Russell McKay, he worked on the first two videos that we did, which was Only Lonely and Take the L. And we did two videos, I think in two days, for $60,000, which is insane. But it was before the, the um, before that actually, it was like the beginnings. It was like the Wild West of videos. It was like nobody, it wasn't Union, it was, it was crazy. Um, and because it was a wonderfully collaborative process, I mean, I've always, had a lot to do with the artwork and when it came to the videos, you know, some of them doing some storyboarding and stuff. And so, I, I mean, I wanted to be an artist before I was, you know, came out as a musician, you know. So I, I, I'm, I love that aspect as well. So once again, I think the creative juices just get going and, and there's an excitement about this new form of, of storytelling. And that's because that's what it is. And so... You know, just as when I get on stage and I start telling stories, I, I can become these people. It's even more sort of evident in, in videos. That's what that's what you're doing, and so it was it was fun. And you get you play dress ups and you take on roles, and it's it. I, I think I love any place where I can lose myself. <laughs> so um, it, yeah, it was it was it was really fun. Um, once again, it wasn't it, it was. It was about losing yourself instead of like putting. I didn't even think about the aspect of this is going to launch my career. It wasn't. It was just more about the wonderful, seductive power of creating images and creating this 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 thing. And it was funny because Russell came up to me and he says, "I see you in a champagne in a uh, champagne glass in the middle of the desert," you know. And I'm like, "Uh, I was thinking more like," <laughs> and we would go back and forth, but. You know, I think it's still a beautiful video, The Only Lonely. Now, and I think that Take, Take the L is the first time that the TV ever exploded on, on a video, which happened quite a bit after that. <laughs> see that? You got your trendsetters. You started the whole TV blowing yep. up thing. Um, now, uh, you also, you won, a, you won an American Music Award for uh, a video, right? Yeah, for Only Lonely. Now, what was that like? You, you, did you did you accept it? Did you sit there? Did you did you even know that there was going to be a category called Best Video Performance? And what's it like going to an award show? Um, I'm not even sure. I don't remember even going to pick that award. I don't know. <laughs> oh, what my cup of tea. I've done them. I've been to them. I've had to, you know, give people awards. It's 
nerve-wracking, not my not my happy place. It's just <laughs> all that. The hoopla is like it's just I don't know, but the red carpets and all that stuff. It's kind of. I mean, sometimes it's something necessary because it just does help things. But it's um, and it's very nice to receive an award. I mean, it's great. I, you know, I don't know it. Just you know. <laughs> I don't know what to say. What is, what was, now, the, the songs are a hit, so now you're playing to bigger crowds. What What is, uh-huh. were you getting acclimated to it very quickly? Because, you know, once you start having big hits, you're going to play bigger crowds, and these songs were giant hits. So what was it uh-huh. like? Were you excited to be up with a bigger crowd? Because, you know, you said it wasn't, it was a little much too mainstream for you. You liked the quirky stuff, and you probably liked playing at the smaller clubs more because... That seems like your personality. But what's it like when you all of a sudden have to sit there and play these songs and go to bigger venues? Is it something exciting or is it something when, as you said, you love being on stage, but is it something that's uh, a different adventure for you where you're like, you were a little not sure how it would go? It's, um, you know, I, I think it's gradual enough where you're not like getting the bends from going from the small club to a giant facility, but I will tell you this, giant facilities, you know, a hockey, hockey rink sucks for, you know, big, big athletic venues just suck for music. They're, they're not, it's not what they were built for. Um, if you're in the audience, you're, you know, you're miles away from the stage, the people in the front row are miles away from you. So in that respect, you're not getting the gratification of actually feeling the interaction. What you're feeling is this mass interaction of like a, a huge response that's very um, there's no individuals it's just one big blanket response but I did try my best to keep the <laughs> this is hilarious I would I would do things where because I used to go out in the audience quite a bit in, in the clubs you know I still do you never know what's going to happen but um, in the arenas you would I would Basically, what would happen is we'd go for an encore, I would leave, I would run backstage, I would change my clothes in my high heels, which I'm not wearing anymore, I'm too old for that shit, but, and run the entire length of the auditorium and come in the back door and then wind my way through the audience during the song. So that at least for a minute, you know, you can get up close and personal with people and, you know... And there was one day in Texas we were doing it, and I'd run to the back of this giant place, and my tour manager was with me, and then we get to the door. Here I am, all dressed up with my makeup, got the microphone, and this guy at the back door is like, let's see your ticket. And I'm like, I'm the singer saying, I'm sorry, I can't come in without a ticket. Gotta see your ticket. I'm like, and meanwhile, the band is vamping on the intros because they're waiting for me to start. (laughs) (laughs) It was hilarious. My tour manager was like, she says, damn, the singer, see the microphone, you better... We finally got in, but it was hilarious. And the other thing is, is that when you're playing that far back from the band, the slap back, the echo, it's really crazy, because it's really hard to know where you're singing to, so I would have to, like, watch the band and try to, you know, I, I don't even know how it got pulled off, but we would do it, and... It was fun, um, but crazy. Those venues are not made for music. What was the biggest? What was the biggest crowd that you remember playing to? If you could make it, just an estimation of how many people. I don't know, forty thousand. That's that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. 
That's a lot of people. So now during the, like that. Now do, during this. Huh? No, I was going to say during this time. During this time, you also uh, you were asked to do songs for a sound different soundtracks. How does that come about, and how do you specifically write a song for a soundtrack? Um, that's usually through the agency. They'll come up and say this happens. It, it comes from different places, you know, different people, you know, all of a sudden. I mean, because if, you're, if you have a presence on the airwaves, you know, you're going to be one of the people that the music supervisors will think about. Um, so it can come in from various ways, but... Once you've got the assignment, that's the other thing. As much as when I write, you know, for when I write my motel songs and and various different songs, I write very strict stream of consciousness. If you've got a, uh, but I love assignments. I love assignments as well. I've done musicals and stuff where it's like you have very specific things you have to get across, and that's also really fun. I mean, because it's a different kind of creative process, but still a creative process. So it's not hard. For, I mean. By this time, you know, not by this time, but even even in the 80s, like, writing had become just so kind of easy for me. I mean, it was getting easier. Now it's like breathing for me. I mean, I write very quickly. I very seldom change a lot. Um, I, You know, it's just, it's very natural for me. I've been doing it for fucking ever, you know, right. so it... And it's fun to have those challenges. It's fun to say, okay, we're going to need a song for you know this or that. And you watch the movie, and then you try to come up with something that might, you know, might work, and see if it see if it does. <laughs> so, so as the motels are, you know, you're going on in time. When did you decide to go and branch off to solo? Was there a certain reason that made you do that? Did you want to explore your own musical options? Were you tired of possibly that they? wanted to make the band more commercial. What, I mean, or is it sometimes that you just get tired of a band? How does someone decide to become a solo artist? And and the amazing thing is, I mean, the motels, everyone, you know, everyone thought of you anyway. So it's going solo, maybe second nature. But how did you decide that you wanted to be go solo? And was it a hard process? It was definitely not a decision. It was a thing that kind of happened. And partially because of what you said, because... The, the record company started really pushing for Martha, you know, it's like, you know, you're the band, you're the writer, you're the da-da-da, and the band got, um, in, and, and certain producers, too, well, like Val especially, would bring in his own guys. The guys were getting relegated to the sidelines, which totally took a huge hit on their morale, you know, it's hard. Um, as we got to that, uh, the album after Shock, there, the money was not what it what it had been in the beginning. Um, in the heyday, um, things were getting tighter. I, I think I, you know, I had to take the guys off retainer all year long. Um, and you know, as things happened, it was just you could see it, it was kind of like you know a marriage dissolving. Like in the beginning, when it was time to go to the studio, everybody shows up, you know, just like early and ready and prepared and then it, by the time we got to that point it was like people were dragging in they didn't even seem like they wanted to be there and it was like it was like the motels were not there anymore you know it was just sad it was heartbreaking it was like a relationship because we all loved each other you know um and so at one point i was just like you know this is this this just is it's going to become more detrimental to the 
purpose than it is to um, beneficial. So I took the, it was Friday, uh, it was Valentine's Day, and I took each one of the guys as they dragged in across the street to the bar, bought them a drink, and fired them. And Michael Goodrow still refers to it as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. <laughs> um, I then, because that album was not supposed to be a solo album, it was supposed to be a Motel's record. And now it was like, and I was, I was myself sort of depressed. I was kind of not happy with the musical direction I was going in. I was, you know, it was becoming too poppy and M.O.R. for me. I was just generally not, not a happy camper. And now that the band was no longer there, then it's sort of like, I, I kind of was tired, you know, that kind of tired you get from being in a place that's, that's just not making you happy, you know. And uh, so everybody came in and was like, oh, you need to write with this people, you need to write with those. Here's a Diane Warren song. And, and I'm like, you know what? And I did it all. It was sort of like this, I did it all. But I'm a writer. That's what I am before anything. This is not really how this should have ended up. And I, I think it just got, I didn't have the strength or the courage to fight anything. I just did it. And then afterwards, I just, I went, I'm done. I, I got to leave. And I had my lawyer call up Capitol and tell him, you know, I did a tour for the Policy album, and um, then I just I just hung it up for a while, and I upholstered couches for a year. <laughs> really? So you just said to hell with it, and you just went and did something completely different? Yep. And now... Yep. And we... not, not upholstering couches for money. I just to, just to see something... The thing about music is that people don't understand this. It takes a long... It's a long process from the moment you write a song to the point that it will ever be heard, if ever. You know, it's a long, arduous process just of recording, of, like, I mean, you can have an album finished and say, my album's done, it'll still take four months before you get, like, the artwork in the press and this and that. Oftentimes, by the time you get done with an album, you're so done with an album. You're like, on to the next, this is over for me, you know? But, um... Yeah, it was, I was, I was just ready, I needed, and it, for the first time in my life, I went, I think that was 89 when I left Capitol, I went a year without writing a song, I had never done that, I mean, I'd never, never done that, I was always writing, you know, didn't matter if it was for something, you know, I wasn't always writing an album, but I would always pick up my guitar and be doing something, and I just, I didn't even want to, I didn't even want to do that. And so, but then, then it all came back, and I actually went back and started from the beginning again. I started, I, I started with a band of young guys that had never ever seen a record deal. I I started like basically with a garage band and you know writing new songs, and I think I wanted to go through the whole process again and be more present, you know, right. because I think that when it happened to me the first time, I was kind of. I don't know. It was. It was. It didn't make sense. It was just too. I think there were too many other things that were. Um, so anyway, and then it was the same progression of, you know, finding new members and changing the band and changing direction and changing. And you know, I've done all kinds of music now. I mean, I have a slew of country and western songs. I have a slew. Of, I have a jazz album that hopefully will come out next year. I have, you know. I have a musical I'm working on right now, and I'm actually writing a TV show with a friend as well. 
so it's the creative process that makes me happy. That's that's the thing. And if I can come out and play those songs live, that makes me super happy too. Now you, you wrote did you you wrote a kids album too, didn't you? And I've written a couple of kids albums. Yeah. Now, now what's Which that process has, like? What's that? What's that process like? Oh, it was so fun. It was the best thing in the world. Well, the first one I did years ago when my grandkids were small, and my daughter just, it was right during the time of Barney, the dinosaur, and she was like, Mom, you have to write songs <laughs> that don't drive me crazy. Somebody's got to write some songs that aren't, because it's just like the banality and the way that songs were written for children for a while has been just like the stupidest songs ever that that they want to hear over and over and over and over again so the parents go insane. So I wrote this whole album and it's, you know, and, and I'm, because, just because of, I know my background, you know, like Igor Stravinsky was my favorite thing when I was five. So I figured, you know, I don't think we need to talk down to kids at all. I think they can, they can totally figure out music, you know. So it's interesting music with funny songs. It was all about animals, um, you know, different animals. And, you know, it's, it was it was so fun. I mean, I, that projects like that, I can write ten songs a day and just have the best time. So, when did you decide to get the motels back together? You're doing all this this, uh, you know, you're doing your solo stuff, which, as you said, lets you examine and go into different aspects of your writing. You know, as you said, you, you're a creator. You know, you like providing content. When did you decide to sit there and go, you know what, let's just, let's, let's do the motels again? Because was it because people missed you guys, do you think? Or were, when did that start? And then how, you know, how did you decide that you would launch it again? Um, that, again, is another process of kind of a long and winding road. Because I think you're right. You know, I had to journey through these other aspects. I had to, you know, I think once you get in the system as something, you know, it was important to break down that, that system and, and allow, because when, when I was the motels, writing the motel stuff in the 80s, that was a pretty closed little thing, you know, it was like, this is the kind of songs you write, this is what people expect, this is what people want, and then to take, to venture out and, and discover all these different things which only just broadens your palette. It only just gives you more tools in your toolbox, you know. And um, and as the process went on, you know, I'm still, pl I never stopped playing. I, I stopped performing for that one year, and then I started up again, albeit in smaller clubs and stuff like that. And there was always a certain cachet to my name, although I had, I had literally made it so, um, when we were the motels, I, they kept saying, well, it should be Martha Davis and the Motels. And they're like, no, it's a band. It's the Motels. It's the Motels. To such a degree that a lot of people didn't know who Martha Davis was because it was always the Motels, you know? And I wanted it that way. I didn't, I, I felt very vehemently when I first started out that I did not want to be the pretty girl in the band, you know, that was, I, I wanted to be known for the music. I told them, I, I did, that's why my picture was never on the, the front cover of the albums, you know, for the first few, few albums, and um, I just, well, first two albums for sure, um, and that didn't make the record company happy, because we're all cute when we're 20, you know, or 29, whatever I was, but um, it it became such a, a thing that I, I literally um, was playing these shows, 
and was getting some gigs, and they were okay. There was actually some okay money, but the promoters were just going nuts that it it couldn't be the motels. They're like, look, you're kind of ruining your own potential here by not using the name. So we brought back the name, and that's how that, but still, even as the motels or Martha Davis in the motels or the motels featuring Martha Davis, whatever we were calling it, um, it was sort of different band members until about almost 14 years ago when I found this lineup that I've been working with for the last 14 years. And uh, these guys, it's the best motels I've ever had. They're the greatest guys. They were together longer than the original motels. They're amazing players. They're, we, you know, it's just a great band. And the last manager I had wanted to, made us, you know, said, well, it should be Martha Davis and the motels. So that's what we were for a while. But now we're just the motels. Uh, we're back to, and it's a band. Talking about coming full circle and taking years doing it. Um, I, I really feel like this is a, a band that sort of answers all the, the desires that I had first going into it. It's really the motels again. It really is. And it's, but only, I think, better, more interesting. I mean, I've, I've got a lot more to say, and I've been through a lot more. So it's interesting. It's, uh, it's good. And new album is coming out next year. So. And you're, you're, you've been touring. So what's it like touring after, you know, do you still love going on the road? I know you have a two concerts coming yeah. up in the next few, uh, one's Saturday, I believe. Yep, going down to Coachella, Spotlight 29, and um, yeah, I love it. I love performing. I love it. This band, like I said, makes me, I mean, it's there's nothing as wonderful as making music, and when you're making music with people you love that are amazing musicians, it's just, it's like a slice of heaven. It's wonderful. I mean, I still, I've never had, I've never had a hard time touring. I've never had a hard time. And I get the question, oh, but you sung Only Lonely so many times. And they're like, you never sing the Only the Lonely the same way twice, ever. It's always a different audience. It's always a different venue. The song has to be reinvented every night for that particular circumstance. It's not reinvented that we're changing chords or anything, but you're re reinventing your the way you perform it, you know, because every circumstance is different. So... I don't get tired of everything, and um, it's just, I, you know, I still love it. How much do you love that the uh, the 80s, that music's all coming back? You must love that, because you're going to get a whole new group of fans. For an artist, that must be great. I think anything that helps um, artists at this point, and we laugh because one of the guys in my band is also in a tribute band, and it's hilarious, because the way that the... Um, the <laughs> The music business is now, you know, sort of monetarily, and I'm not talking about me a legacy act, but if you look at it, tribute bands make the most money, then next is cover bands, and then next is original music if you don't have a history. And it's true. It's just like, it's like people uh, keep saying, we have to put together a tribute band at the motels to cash in on that shit. Right. But um, it's, it's, you know what, it's, it's great that the 80s are coming back. I, I have, I've heard a lot of, uh, in fact, we kind of refer to them as the won't go away 80s because they kind of never did go away and there's always been a love and a special 
you know, there's, there, it was a wonderful time, and it was a really, really interesting time musically. And when I hear bands nowadays that, like, I've heard bands that, like, wow, that sounds like Blondie, or wow, that sounds like such and such, and it makes me laugh because the one thing that was important to us in the 80s that was that no two, two bands ever sounded alike. Boingo Boingo never sounded like Patty Smith never sounded like, you know, every David Byrne, never, everybody was completely unique. Devo, you know, it, just, it was crazy, you know, it was completely diverse, and that was the most important thing to every artist, is they brought something completely unique to the table. We only have a few minutes left. I want to ask you, what was it like when you got a chance to play the Hollywood Bowl? I think it was 2012. Was that like a... For someone who was in L.A. with the music scene for so long, what is that feeling? Because that place is so historical and, and legendary. And being someone who had had been in L.A. and been, you know, through the different bars, what was that like when you got to play? And how were you just enthused? I, it's it's a wonderful venue, and it was it's great fun, and and, and it's um, I don't know it 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 was it was a beautiful it was a beautiful experience. It's there, I play so many different places. You kind of get on a uh, on a thing. I mean, you play lovely, wonderful places. You, I still can play some places that are a little questionable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, it's like like it's more as beautiful as the Hollywood Bowl is. It really, truly is more about the experience that you get with the feedback, so it's, you know, it's not the place that's memorable, but the evening and the people and what kind of response you're getting. And LA has been very sweet to me, you know. They, they, they continue to be supportive. And, and so it's, yeah, it's really nice. Now, what made you move to Oregon? Because bottom line, I am a dirt girl. <laughs> I, am, I am not a city dweller. Um, I have always been... A, a gal that just really needs to be outdoors in a way, and I'm not not the most. I don't like to go out, and you know, I mean, I do this for my living. This is how I I spend time in cities. I spend spend time, you know, you don't go play in a pasture somewhere, but when I go home, I do. <laughs> right. So it's a perfect balance for me. Now the new album you said will be out next year. Um, uh -huh. How far is that? too close to being done oh it's minutes away from we're just doing a couple of little finishing touches on it I wanted it to be out June of this year and I sadly told said, hey, it's going to be out but it's difficult because I live up in Oregon and, and my band's down here and we work on it when we get together and when we have time it's not like the old days where they give you a chunk of money and you go in the studio for three months but the, the, I think that the process, because it's taken a couple of years, only because we're not together and we don't have that that luxury. But um, because of the time it's taken, I usually say, you know, oh God, I spent a year making um, all for one album, and it drove me crazy. I never want to work on an album that long again. Well, this one's taken two years, but we it wasn't like we were working on it all the time. So it's actually allowed for a lot of growth in the material and in the, the vision that I have. I'm, I'm kind of now not doing albums of just, oh, these are, here's some cool songs I wrote. I'm, I'm kind of over that if the album does not, because people don't even buy albums anymore. They, they buy songs. 
So if you're going to present them with an album, you better give them a reason to buy the album. And so I want every album to be a journey. I want it to be um, almost a, you know, um, what do you call those? Ah. I just need it to be a cohesive piece of work where everything is connected and there's an arc to it. So it's like the album itself is like a song. You know, you start at the beginning, then you go somewhere, and then you end up somewhere. So the album is is, is like that, and it's had a chance to really, because of the, the two years we've been working on it, really turn into something that has surprised me. I actually, it's 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 turned, turned me around a couple of times, which is great. I love that when the art starts taking you by the scruff of the neck. <laughs> now, now, will you tour for that album when it comes out? Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so you you have two, yeah, it's, you, you have two more dates. Uh, you have Saturday, then you have you're in uh, Reno, I believe, in December. Do you have any 2017 uh-huh. dates planned? Um, there's stuff already on the books, but more is coming. So um, that, that will be announced as it comes. We've got to try to revamp all of our social media and do all that stuff that drives me insane, which I don't do a lot of. I but I I have to do some input. I'm starting to uh, work on ideas for videos and, and, you know, I have to do the artwork, get the artwork together for the new stuff. But yeah, a lot going on. Good. Well, yeah, I want to thank you for coming on. I know I've, I've been talking through Facebook to some of your people. It took a while because I finally record out of home. But I really want to thank you for coming on. And I know your, your website is uh, themotels.com. And what's your uh, Twitter? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, they can Google Martha Davis I think Twitter. It's on, like, I think it's on the Facebook page. <laughs> okay. It's, you know, I'm an old lady. Give me a break. Okay. I'm a, <laughs> well, I, I want Okay. No, I want to thank you for coming on, and uh, and I've I've loved your music over the years, and it sounds like you're doing great. So it's awesome. So people, well, oh, go ahead. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I think next year is going to be a really fun year. Cool. Well, people, go to themotels.com. If you haven't listened to music, look it up. Go buy it. Take care of them. You know, follow them on Twitter. Uh, just write Martha Davis. Twitter, and you can find it. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 560 episodes up there where you can also email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. And also, Instagram One. I mean, Instagram and Words with Friends. I'm both Cooper Talk One. I'll play with Words with Friends. I'm, I'm getting pretty good at it. And Instagram has a lot of uh, past guests and links to shows and a lot of my recipes. Because as you know, I went through that heart problem a few years ago. And I wrote that cookbook. And you can go to StopTheSalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. They're very easy to make. There's no pictures to intimidate you. And there's no long list of uh, ingredients. Like, if you want to eat cumin, it's not going to be in there. I mean, as you get an advanced cook, you can do it. So go to StopTheSalt.com and buy it there. You can buy it at Barnes & Noble. You can buy it at Amazon where everybody's buying it. But please, buy it from StopTheSalt.com because I make more money. So don't forget, people. Check out the motels. Great music. Check out, look forward to their new upcoming concerts. And yeah, keep listening to my show. And that's about it. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.